that th I find there's a routine for me where I'm always, even if the story's not about a person, I'm looking for a person to make that story about, to, to have it, like we, like we said earlier, the human experience is what it's all about. I, I see other stories of that 11-year-old car cleaner, and it's, you know, the guy's on a tripod and he's pointing right at the car. Like, all right, that's, that's one angle. Like, I need a hundred angles. So I'm going in the car. You know, I don't want to point at the car. I want to go in the car and I want to shoot from, like I said earlier, start from within and move out instead of, you know, just shooting from the outside only. Several years ago, Professor Mark Berkey Gerard showed me a short interview with Texas Tribune editor-in-chief Evan Smith. And in it, Smith enthusiastically talks about how today's journalists and by extension, today's journalism students, need to be Swiss army knives, not meat cleavers. Translation, editors, news station directors, digital publishers, you name it, are looking for journalists who can do a little bit of everything from shooting and editing video to publishing independent websites to recording and editing audio and everything in between. It was a transformative video for us because it helped, I think, further evolve and consolidate the mission of both Digital Journalism 1 and 2. We recognized perhaps those courses' central imperative to help students become Swiss army knives of journalism. And it was around the same time that I had the pleasure of teaching today's guest, Matteo Ayadenisi, who graduated in 2018 with degrees in both journalism and radio, TV, and film. Matteo was an exceptionally talented student, and I was, I was frequently impressed not only by his technical mastery of multimedia, but his ability to use those talents to tell compelling stories. So I was pleased, but not surprised, when I heard that he'd gotten a job as a citizen journalist for 6ABC immediately after graduation. It was a brand new position at the network, and for the past two years, Matteo's been producing short video profiles of people, places, uh, events all across the tri-state area that have a positive uh, hook or, or theme to them. And for the most part, it's a one-man operation. Matteo shoots all the footage, sometimes using as many as six different cameras. Uh, he conducts all of the interviews and edits each piece down to its final manifestation. Uh, which airs on the nightly news broadcast as well as the station's digital platforms. And he does this every day. At just 25 years old, Matteo recently completed his 500th piece. 500. That's <laughs> extremely impressive. I, I was particularly excited to interview Matteo because I was immediately struck by how his work feels so authentic and organic. Not only does he have the technical mastery needed to, to make visually compelling pieces, but he has an innate sense of how to tell human stories that never feel forced or sentimental or saccharine, which is too often the aesthetic of quote-unquote good news journalism. Some of these stories, and, and there are links in the show notes, I would highly suggest you check them out genuinely moved me to tears. 
And, and none of this, of course, happens by accident. Mateo has an actual process and formula for obtaining uh, this that he's refined over time. And I think for any student listening out there, if you're interested in producing engaging visual and audio media, you could learn a, a lot from hearing him describe uh, this process, which he does during this interview. So anyhow, Mateo and I cover a lot of ground from his early days as a 10-year-old YouTuber to his time at Rowan to the uh, challenging emotional landscapes that he sometimes has to navigate when telling these types of stories. He really is a Swiss army knife of talents and passion. So without any further ado, Matteo Ayadenisi. Yeah, it definitely is. And I'm coming across okay on, on your end? Yeah, I hear you great. Fantastic. Um, well, this is so great. I, I, it's funny, when I decided to do this project, um, which was sort of something I came up with over winter break, I immediately sent out emails to uh, to the rest of the faculty. I said, hey, you know, what, what alums are on your radar that are doing cool things? And um, and I got a few names, some, some folks who were a bit older and had graduated a while ago. And, and then it wasn't until you can, I can't remember when, I guess we connected on Twitter of like a week ago or so. Like, yeah. and I can't remember if I first like followed you or if I don't know what the, the sort of chain of events was. Um, but when I saw your name come up on Twitter, I was like, oh, right, Mateo, what the hell, what, what's he up to? And, and when I started <laughs> flipping through, I was like flipping through your, your feed. I was like, oh my God, he is, he is doing prodigious work. I've got oh, to talk to you. him. So um, I'm really just super stoked to have you, um, to have you on the podcast. I think this is, this is going to be really great. Well, I'm st stoked to talk with you again, because obviously I, I treasured our time in class together. Um, nice. being that I think we had two classes together actually. And, uh, that second one was when I was, you know, I was actually going to Philly, um, to work at the station early in the morning and I would leave uh, six ABC to come to Rowan. So it was kind of a weird, <laughs> a weird transition every day. Yeah, when you um, when you mentioned in your email to me how you were you were working as a, a tour guide for Six ABC in between right. classes, I I thought, oh yeah, I remember a few times. You know, you'd show up and you'd have the Six ABC shirt on, and I'm like, oh, so that's <laughs> what he was doing. So yeah, um, that's that's really cool. Um, so I get I guess first of all, and I I, I really sort of run these very kind of casually and, and conversationally. Um, but I do want to just have you do a, uh, introduce yourself and give folks a sense of your, your job title and just a little bit about what that is. Sure. So my name is Matteo Idenisi. You may know the name, but you won't know the face because I'm uh, the only person on six ABC's talent that is, is a reporter that does not actually appear on camera. So what I do is exclusively feel good, positive news, nat pieces. So using natural sound, um, interviewees, uh, things that are gathered on the scene only. And, uh, the way that it works is I'm technically part of the uh, general assignment. So every day, five days a week, I'll pitch a story. We'll have a meeting. We'll, um, you know, sift through what's happening for the day and decide what's best for me to cover. And then I'll head out as a one-man band, I'll go by myself, uh, driving myself, doing all the filming, doing all the videography, 
doing the interviewing, of course, and then uh, rushing back home or sometimes even just popping up shop in my car and uh, editing that piece together for its airing on our afternoon newscast, but um, also with a, with a deliberate focus on getting that piece to air um, on our social channels and live there and grow legs there. So the idea is that um, some, some news happens and then it's gone the next day and we're looking for news every day that is sustainable and can really um, extend itself across space and time on our many, many platforms, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whether it be our streaming apps um, like Roku and Apple TV, or even just the 6ABC app on your phone, we're trying to make content that can uh, connect with people on a level that's not so doom and gloom as most of the news uh, tends to be mm. nowadays. Yeah, I, I, I can't wait to, to get into your work itself. Um, I was going to say, I'm, I'm glad that I watched so many of your clips um, well in advance of this, because if I had watched them just before we started recording, I think you would still be able to hear sort of the, the tremor in my voice from the amount of emotional <laughs> impact that some of those had. I mean, oh my God. I, so I, I, I I really, uh, I look forward to delving into the specifics of your work and, and, and also this one man band concept, which is something that I talk about in, in my classes, particularly my, my digital journalism classes. Um, so I, I'm, I'm excited to, to get into all that for sure. Um, before we do though, kind of turn, turn in the, the clock back a bit. When did you actually graduate from Rowan and, and what were your degrees? So I graduated from Rowan in 2018, and I had two degrees. One of them was in radio, TV, film, and the other one was in journalism. So I did both of those at the same time. Uh, only did four years at Rowan, and uh, three of those years I spent as the production director at Rowan Radio. And that was kind of my only job prior to Channel 6. So the jump right from college to the uh, full-time world was rather uh, quick and uh, abrupt for me. I, I actually was kind of a there, there was a lot of overlap, actually, as uh, I was actually, you know, freelancing with Channel 6 and giving tours there while I was taking your class. So it was really interesting to have that dynamic. But I had only graduated right now. It'll, it's less than three years ago. So I feel like I have a lot to relate uh, with the students that are currently there and even ones that have just recently graduated and are still looking for work. Yeah, that's that's so awesome. You are you're you're definitely the youngest uh, guest that I've had on the podcast so far. <laughs> and for you to for you to make a jump, you know, right from Rowan to not just a media job, but a, uh, a, a big market, um, uh, media job. That, that's just so awesome and encouraging. Um, so what made you want to study journalism, study media in the first place? I mean, did you, did you go to Rowan with that very explicit intention? Yeah. And I think that the, the people who really want to do this thing will find a way to do it some way or another. And I feel like I can chalk up a lot of that jump for me right into WPVI was that just raw desire that I have to do this, that I want to do this. And it's it didn't always start with television for me. I was actually, um, you know, I'm, I was born in 96, so dating some folks mm -hmm. who might be listening, but um, I'll be 25 this year. And when I was about 10 years old was when YouTube first started to come around. So you're talking about the, the dawn of uh, internet social media and really the concept of broadcasting yourself, whereas you didn't need to work with a major motion picture company or be signed to anywhere to actually make your own videos. And so that really piqued my interest at a young age and followed me throughout um, grade school. I did the news when I was in high school. I was doing the morning broadcasts at Paul Six High School. 
in Haddonfield. And I knew that I wanted to study uh, radio, television, and film when I went to Rowan. So I really uh, hit the ground with my feet running or hit, you know, hit the ground with my feet running basically. Mm-hmm. And I, I got right into the radio station. As I said, I did three years there. And as for television, it was kind of like my last choice out of radio, TV, film. I wanted to do film first, then radio, and then TV. And I think that the classes at Rowan helped me to find where I think I was most uh, useful and where I was, where where my interest really lied. I didn't love uh, the whole idea of working on a huge film set and just being one little piece of it. I wanted to explore a lot of different talents that I think I, I could develop over the years. And I found a way to do that with radio and that transitioned into television when I got an internship with 6ABC. So it was just after my junior year of college, I received an internship that lasted for three months and I still have never left since since that very day. So mm. it was something that just kind of steamrolled for me and and really finding out where my talents were best suited. And I found that television had an opportunity for me to not only be the videographer, not only to be the interviewer, but to also be the editor and kind of the creative mind behind it. So the fact that I'm, I'm using all of my skill set in a job is fascinating in itself. But I think the even more fascinating thing is that job that I have now, which is called community journalist, it did not exist when I was interning with Channel 6. Mm. In fact, it was a simultaneous thing. When I got hired full time, I was the first community journalist and out of all ABC in the entire country. So the fact that I was working there and still my the job I would eventually come to have had not yet been created just shows how much more opportunities there are in this industry for not only creative people, but even young creative people and, and seeing how um, the old guard at television stations are, you know, still working and still upholding that those standards that they have, but really looking to the younger generation for guidance on how to move forward and keep this business uh, profitable and alive into the next generation. Yeah, that, that that's that's so interesting. I I tell my students all the time that there are opportunities that don't yet exist that will exist by the time they graduate, and yeah. to be prepared to just really kind of go where. Uh, the opportunities are, even if it's something new, if it's something unexplored. Uh, and it, it's really interesting that 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 was your the case for you. Um, I'm also so fascinated when you mentioned how growing up, you know, at, at 10 is when YouTube came around. And yeah, that does make me shudder just a little bit <laughs> uh, when I think about how old I was when YouTube came around. But, um, but it also makes me think about what, you know, when I was growing up, I knew I, I definitely wanted to be involved in creating media of some sort. And, um, but I was limited. I, I just had, you know, my, my parents camcorder and I used to make, mm-hmm. you know, movies in the backyard. I used to, and I would do fake radio shows with, with my friends, but we would just, you know, we just recorded ourselves to cassette. And I think about, I've never thought about this before, but how different I think my childhood would have been if I had these tools at my disposal. I definitely would have been making YouTube videos and and you know podcasts and stuff um, at the age of you know ten or eleven. It's really just neat to think that you had that opportunity uh, growing up. Yeah, and I remember you know going through all the different forms of technology and how frustrating it was to try to make a YouTube video with just a tiny little camcorder. But the years went on. And I I remember 10 years ago to the day, uh, last 10 Christmases ago, I got my first green screen. So Mm. I've been, you know, constantly evolving with the times. And it's kind of like, you know, I guess born at the right time is a way to put it, but also just this constant passion that I have for it, that it's not just a 
not just a job. It's not just a profession. It's something that I wanted to pursue um, even after I was a child. So what was it about um, the desire? I also, by the way, I share in your potential path of film. One of my undergraduate degrees was in in (laughs) film. And there was a time when I did think, oh, I'm going to, you know, go out to LA or be an independent filmmaker in in New York or something. Um, So I, I, I I get that drive as well. But what was it for you that made you want to create media in in, in general? Is it, is it a, a storytelling impulse? Is it a you know, impulse for conversation? Um, like what, what's sort of the, what was the kind of aesthetic, uh, drive that you had behind what you wanted to do? It's funny because, uh, before I got hired to this job, I had always been immersed in telling my own stories, you know, like creating fictional stories or whether it be through an actual, you know, uh, storytelling format, like a book or writing a poem or a rap song or something like that. I was so interested in creating my own concepts and showing the world from my perspective. I forgot about your rap stuff. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, then when I got hired uh, to channel six, it totally flipped and and reversed on me. So now I'm telling other people's stories and I'm exclusively using their perspective. Cause as I said, I'm not actually tracking or writing or narrating the piece at all from mine. So it's so, it, it became so much more rewarding for me to interview somebody and have them tell the story in their own words, and then only be able to use those words to tell it back in a compelling way. It's like, you know, when you're, when you're writing a, like a little rap or a poem or whatever, you have the entire world's lexicon at your disposal and you can be so super creative. But with, when you're doing like a nat piece and you're not the one who's speaking, you're basically going out and collecting these puzzle pieces. And then once you've collected them all, you come back to the drawing board and you think, how do I arrange these to tell it in the most compelling way? And the, the result to me is so rewarding because you're getting that person's uh, perspective from the inside out. Whereas I feel like a lot of news stories that utilize a reporter or a track kind of tell the story from the outside in. Mm. So it's like somebody's bringing you there, whereas I'm actually bringing you out from there, mm. starting with that person's perspective. And that's that's what has propelled me to love my career now and to keep doing it. But I think that the storytelling element has always been uh, with me since I was a little kid. Yeah, yeah. I, and I love your focus, I, how you just articulated the difference between sort of an outside in versus like an inside out perspective. It's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why um, so many of my media assignments for digital journalism, whether it's uh, doing an audio interview or, or doing a video profile, I have my students edit themselves out because right. I really <laughs> want them to, it can be very easy to use your narration as a as a crutch and and it can i think interfere with getting the type of like organic uh story from your subject that you really really want to get and i think there's a lot of value in that and it's and i i I couldn't have articulated it better um yes exactly right so uh again before we get into some of your current work um just a little bit more reflection how would you articulate uh, the most valuable elements? Um, and this doesn't have to be, this is not a commercial for, for Rowan. So, you know, be, you can be <laughs> totally real with me about this, but um, how would you articulate some of the most, the more valuable aspects of an education in journalism at, at, at the Rowan level? Well, I think there's two things. One is uh, the legitimacy that comes with uh, uh, an establishment of higher education 
like, for example, when I got my internship, I wouldn't have gotten it if I wasn't enrolled in a university. So there is a, 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 like a pedigree to going to a college. And I think that Rowan is really stepping up in the conversation of which local universities have um, the most value uh, to, to going there and coming away with a degree from there. But the other thing I think is, um, you know, when, when I kind of approached the concept of media making and storytelling, I had only my own perspective of it. And when you get to meet not only other students, but especially other professors in the academia, they kind of bring you down to earth a little bit and help you recognize what is needed on a professional level to succeed, not just on a creative level. So I feel like my experience at Rowan, especially with my professors such as yourself, but also with the folks who run the radio station um, and constantly uh, being put in positions to actually fail and then hear what I did wrong and how to fix it later, it really tailors you as a as an all-around uh, valuable person, right? Mm -hmm. it, it Instead of just being creative, you have to know how to talk with, with people, how to finesse uh, with uh, professional contacts and keep in touch with them and, and what to say and what not to say and what to do and what not to do. And so much of that maturing experience happens on the grounds of a university. So, um, and, and again, it happened with my internship too. My bosses there were, were helping me come down to earth a little bit and realize that, you know, I, I can run wild with this stuff, but it has to be accurate. It has to be, uh, you know, informative. It has to be helpful to people. So just finding a direction, I think, is the biggest thing, because I, I feel like before university, even before high school, maybe I was just all over the place with my creative ideas. And then narrowing that path is something that happens when you're able to converse, uh, learn from and actually fail in front of mm. uh, professional types who have done it before you. And that's what happened when I went to Rowan. Mm. Any, any particular um, revelatory or aha moments? at Rowan that you think back on that where, where you're understanding either technically or interpersonally, um, where something clicked, um, for you? Well, I have to give a lot of credit to the radio station because, um, I had just started there and I was like a month into it. And Leo Kirshner tell, told me, uh, so you like production, right? You want to be a production director? He's like, go ahead, make something for me. And, you know, no instruction, just make a little promo for the station. And then when he plays it back, he'll say, this is good, but this needed more timing here. And you need to be more clear when you said this word here. And you need to um, jump out and catch people's attention before you give them the thing that you want them to hear, right? Because they're not always... Mm what you want the audience to hear may not be what they want to hear. So if you give them what they want to hear first, like a sound effect or a, a cue from a song, then you might be able to latch them on and then give them what you want them to hear, which is tune in this Friday for featured artist Friday. Mm. So it's the, the order of events and the way that you uh, craft and curate media to hook people's attention. Um, is something that I learned at the radio station and just every single week, I mean, put, throwing me into the shark tank and saying, make something, do this, do that. And then coming away from it and, and realizing what I maybe did wrong, or you know, even the fact that they let you on the air, you know, to, to pioneer two hours of content and you're pressing every single button and you have to follow all these different rules. Um, there's a lot of failure involved in that. And that's okay. Because if you don't fail there, then you're going to fail on a larger stage. And that was the conflict that I had when I went to Channel 6 because 
um, you know, everybody goes out to these smaller markets to make their mistakes on a smaller stage, and then they learn how to not ever make those mistakes again. And that's what gets them hired at a big time market. But the fact that I started there meant that I was put in positions where I could fail and it could be catastrophic. And not to say that I ever had a huge failure, but little things like maybe I got the date wrong on something or, you know, uh, maybe spelled something wrong in the subtitles. Like all those little things are, are these teaching moments for you. And they happen in the classroom, but they especially happen when you're hands on. So whether that would be um, literally at the radio station producing things or at your internship producing things and learning from these people who came before you and already made those mistakes and that are comfortable enough letting you make some of them yourself. I, I'm, I'm so, so pleased to hear you say that because I tell my students all the time, it's, you know, it's okay to fail. I mean, in the, in the right respects, not like not failing because <laughs> you just didn't turn in your work or something, but yeah. <laughs> um, that we structure the, the curriculum specifically around getting students out into the world and actually doing journalism because that's where that's really the, the most valuable place to to learn to learn it and that comes with making mistakes of you know mm-hmm. and and then learning from those mistakes and not being afraid to make those mistakes or have those little failures um while you're at school because you know that is um that's that's where you kind of get some of that stuff out of your system and and you're not making those mistakes on such a, a larger scale. So yeah, learning from failures. I'm just really happy to hear that that was a perspective of yours uh, at while you were here at school. That's what it's for, right? I mean, there there's no other place for you to, to sign up and go where it's okay to, to make a mistake and fail, you know? Yeah. It's, you have to do it while you're in college. <laughs> Have you had, have there been any moments, so you've, you've been uh, with ABC now for, for two years. Um, have there been any moments, and, and you don't have to, don't feel like you have to formulate an answer to this if you don't have one. I'm curious if there have been moments though where you've um, encountered a situation as a working journalist now where you hearkened back to something that happened to you at Rowan or something you learned at Rowan or an experience you had at Rowan. Well, I don't know if I can come up with, with a specific example, but I, I definitely think that there is a, a process to the storytelling and whether it's going out and um, I guess I could I could probably connect it here. Right. When we were we were at Rowan and we were assigned to do a lot of like man on the street interviews and things like that. That was something I was always very uncomfortable with. And I would wind up like coming away from it and not having like the best quotes. Like I wish I would have talked to like maybe three more people. And so I run into that, into that situation a lot um, when I, in, in the real world because when they send you out to do a man-on-the-street story, especially if it's going to be a nap piece, um, you need a lot of people who are going to tell that story um, in their own words and not just give you one-word sound bites. So uh, I could probably trace back to you know me being at Rowan and trying to do things man-on-the-street and just feeling so uncomfortable saying, oh, I have enough. I'm just going to leave now. Mm. And then realizing I didn't have enough and that that – that clicks with you when you're out in the field doing it for real, because you know, that's it. It's going to, it's going to be on television. It has to be good, right? It's not just for a homework assignment. So you need to get as much as you can while you're out there and, and know when to stop, I guess as well, Mm. but uh, definitely know when you need more. And that's something that happened to me uh, quite a few times when I was at Rowan. What was it that made you uh, feel uncomfortable about uh, these, you know, person on the street interviews (laughs) at, at the time? Well, I think everybody can kind of relate to it, but I, I think of it as 
if myself, you know, um, I wouldn't want to be accosted by a stranger and ask my all my personal information and, yeah. and put myself on television and put my put my words in their hands, if you will. Um, maybe some people are just so detached from the the whole idea of television that they might think it's cool and they want to be on TV for a day because you know they don't do it five days a week like I do. So you kind of have to suspend your own point of view and and just make it exciting for people. And I didn't really know how to do that. You know, I, I didn't. Whenever I would approach people, I would, I maybe would say like, "Hey, I'm doing like a a project for my you know online journalism course. Would you mind talking to me for a few minutes?" And they maybe say no, and then I'm like, "Okay, well, great. I just embarrassed myself." <laughs> or you could do it in a sense where you know I'm I got my microphone out and I'm like, "Hey, how are you guys doing today? Like, are, are you enjoying your lunch? Like, what'd you guys get for lunch?" And maybe I ask them a couple questions for warm up, and then I say, "Hey, I'm doing a little piece for." for Rowan TV or for channel six. And I'd love to hear what you think about it. And they're already buttered up by that mm. point, And they say, Oh, I can kind of trust this person. Well, sure. Um, I don't think I learned uh, quite how to do that until after I went, I was kind of thrown out there and said, go do it. You know, I had to do it a couple of times. And even when I'm, you know, working full time, I still feel uncomfortable just a little bit, but you have to make it an experience for people. It can't just be like, Hey, I need you to do me a favor. It, it needs to be like a, like an attraction. Mm. Like you're, making it a, f- a fun thing that they'll go home and they'll tell their family about. It, not a, not a semester goes by, not a, not a class goes by where I don't address this exact thing with students where I tell them, Hey, look, I know that some of you interviewing people makes you anxious, makes you feel <laughs> self-conscious or potentially embarrassed. And, and I say, and that's okay. I want you to feel, I, I want you to experience those feelings because that never stops in journalism. It, you know, mm-hmm. I still, there are times when I get nervous before interviews um, or I feel like, oh man, I just, that was a stupid question or I, I, <laughs> I don't want to come across as unintelligent or uninformed and you feel like you need to know everything that your subject also knows. And, yeah. you know, um, that's something that, again, it's one of these things that you just have to do you have to do it enough times to begin to get comfortable and to begin like you said I, I love that you know suggestion of don't just jump right in throwing the microphone in their face and saying hey can I ask you some questions <laughs> approach them like human beings right like we're not yeah. robots doing this job we're also humans so let's make a human connection first exactly the human experience is what it's all about yeah I know job. I've often I've often thought of like some like fringe course ideas that we should offer in like, you know, interpersonal communication for journalists or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, conversational techniques, something like that, because it's such a huge part of this job that we just sort of kind of figure out as we go along. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so to your actual work, um, with, with six ABC, the, the position didn't exist when you were interning there, you got hired did they did did they hire you for the the community journalist job like they had just created it and they said okay this is perfect for Mateo or was it some other sort of process yeah it was actually uh created as an outgrowth of a problem that they had in Los Angeles in California so uh there's a lot more traffic over there than there is over here even though there's there's a, quite a bit of traffic here and they thought there's so many good stories happening like outside of the easily accessible area like that can take us less than an hour to drive to so how can we um really tell those stories well what if we planted journalists in those communities to 
live there and work there and not come into the station. So that's where the idea came from. So in other cities, um, apart from Philadelphia, the community journalist role is that. It's a journalist who lives in a particular community and only covers uh, news in that community. And when the idea came across the continental U.S. to Philly, it took on a different approach because, I, I mean, Philly's just, it's a different station. It's its world, it's a, renowned across the country as, you know, being number one in news for the last 40 years. So it's it has a very different approach. And the way that our news director saw this job position is maybe we can get somebody to cover our entire community uh, doing with that same focus. And, but, but we wanted to, we want that person to be a one man band and we want that person to have, uh, to be well-versed in the realm of social and digital media. So they needed somebody who can make a project from conception to completion, start to finish with nobody else's help, which means that you need to have all the different skills. So you need to be able to shoot and interview and edit. Right. And that's what, that's my biggest advice to students out there now is know how to do all those things. Even if you're not a master, be a jack of all of those trades. Mm. And so it really came to me uh, as kind of a conversation that I thought that I was having to develop an idea for what the role could be. I didn't know that I would be considered for it. So there, by the time our second conversation came around and I was told that I was being considered for the job, I was like, what? Like, I didn't <laughs> apply. I didn't interview. I was, I was so uh, taken back by that. But I guess that that was what the first interview was about to in the first place, it was an interview and I didn't know it. Mm. So to always, always be prepared, I guess, for an interview, even if you don't know it's, it's going to happen. But yeah, it was more or less like, how can we uh, t take somebody that we're, uh, you know, confident in and already understands the community and the role that six ABC plays in this community uniquely uh, being a, you know, a staple number one slot for all these years when, it's a really rare occurrence in other television markets. And I guess that through my conversations with our news director that they found it in, found the trust with me and they decided to give me a chance. And I can't be more thankful for that. Um, but like I said, it was that interview where I didn't know I was being interviewed. It was the, the opportunity they gave to say, go out and try this and bring something back and we'll see if we like it. We'll see if it works. And then succeeding in, in that opportunity so it was, mm. it was kind of a back and forth that this job was coming around and they were looking for something to keep me there and they just happened to marry each other at the right time. Yeah. And, and there you were at 23 years old, poised to <laughs> get in there. And, and a big part of it, you're right, is the, the, the sort of multi, not mastery, but the, the, the ability to, um, use a, a, wide range of tools. I can't remember if I know you were in uh online two with me, which has since been renamed digital journalism too. Um mm -hmm. did I show the Swiss Army knife video in that class? Yeah, I think so. I was showing it then. Okay. Yeah. I can't remember when I first started showing that. It was probably right around the time that you were there. Um yeah, from the the editor of the Texas Tribune. And he says, look, if if you're a if you're a student studying journalism, you should be versed in, you know, video editing, audio, uh, you know, all of these different tools so that when an editor or somebody looking to hire somebody, you know, asks you, well, what can you do? You're able to say like, Hey, I can do a little bit of everything. And and here you are, I think, uh, uh, you know, a perfect example of how that can open doors for you. That's awesome. Yeah. And especially like being that I could do a little bit of everything, but I, 
really didn't have any experience on camera. And that turned out to be the, the, the least needed thing. I needed to know how to film and edit first, you know? And the other parts can be worked on after I'm hired and in the job. Mm-hmm. So th- that was the being able to, to do a one-man show, even if you're not a community journalist, quote-unquote, even if you're just a multimedia journalist out there in a small market where they really have a small staff and you're going out and shooting and turning news packages by yourself, I mean, that's that's the most valuable thing for anybody. They'll tell you across the whole country right now. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Students that are listening right now, heed, heed Mateo's words. <laughs> So when, when they, when you got this job, um, they told you you'd be covering, what's your coverage area? It's like Philly suburb, like everywhere from Philly suburbs to Cape May to Delaware. Yeah. Yeah. I cover our entire, uh, you know, broadcast range. So we can, our, our signal shoots out all the way, you know, to Trenton. We can find ourselves in Bethlehem and Allentown, you know, we'll go out to Westchester, but they've sent me out to Hershey before. Mm. And we go, of course, all the way down to the Jersey Shore. So Ocean City, Wildwood, Cape May, and we can go down as south as Rehoboth Beach in Delaware or Middletown or Glasgow. So I really go everywhere. There's been some weeks where, you know, five days in a week that I've hit every corner of the entire tri-state area, (laughs) you know, our coverage area where we go. Um, But it's awesome that I get to really tap into so many unique different places and learn about where I live. You know, I didn't know that Philadelphia was a city with all different neighborhoods that have unique cultures and names that are uh, more distinct than just the umbrella Philadelphia mm-hmm. before. I didn't know that, you know, just, and, and tapping into how proud people are to live in Delco and, and the Jersey <laughs> shore and the, the cultures at each different shore point and how they differ from each other based on the, the, the culture and the business and the, um, you know, like, for example, Atlantic City with the casinos and Cape May being at the very bottom uh, of South Jersey and hearing what how how proud they are of that. You know, it's, there's so many different elements to each little part of the community in our area. And it's really unique. The topography is so different, the, the diversity and ethnicities and the different types of you know, jobs and the people you meet. You know, you can you have the Philly suburbs and then you have the Jersey shore, but in the middle you have the pineys, the pine barrens, and you get to meet a cranberry farmer. You know, it's, it's so, so crazy. And it, it really has brought me closer to my world in the hopes of bringing people closer to their world. And uh, that's actually a lyric in our theme song for action news, move closer to your world. So I've really taken that mantra to heart and that's been my goal throughout this whole job that i have i suddenly i I grew up in south jersey you know my i've spent really my my whole life here in this area um and that's the first time that the action news uh theme song struck me as profound i've been hearing that song you know i could i could have sung you that song when i was like six years old um (laughs) And suddenly I'm getting chills by the phrase, move closer to your world. Like, because yeah, they knew it back then. Yeah, that really is, uh, that's, that's, that's what you're trying to do. And, and you grew up in South Jersey, right? You said you grew up in uh, Haddonfield? Uh, I actually, I grew up um, in Washington Township, but okay. my whole family still lives in South Philly. So I'm just like, I'm the oddball out in the suburbs. Uh, but I spend so much time on both sides of the Delaware River and, um, getting to know what the differences in the cultures are like just from my point of view was interesting enough let alone when i got this job and branched out but you know it it is so unique and part of the reason why i wanted to work in tv is because i wanted to work with channel six it was almost like channel six came first for me Mm. because it's something i grew up watching you know everybody who i looked up to 
uh, as role models and celebrities almost eventually became coworkers to me. Some of the people who are still working there have been there for 40 years, uh, 45 years even, some people 50 years. So it is just such a unique television station uh, in the context of all other stations across the, the country that are battling out with other brands uh, for the number one spot, whereas Channel 6 has just remained that stronghold. And I just loved it growing up. And I said, if I'm working anywhere in this industry, I want to work close to home because that's the community I care about. I want to raise a family here and I want to work at Channel 6. And I didn't stop until I got that. Look at you. That's so great. That's so great. Yeah, it does. You know, 6ABC does have this like, and and it could be my my bias uh, a little bit, but I feel like it does have this sort of like familial legacy kind of aesthetic to it. I was I was just um, I was waiting to pick up some pizza the other day at, at one of our local pizza places. And I looked up and I saw Rick Williams and I was like, damn, Rick Williams is still doing this. And I remember watching him, you know, I would turn on six ABC when my mom would cook breakfast for us in the mornings before school. And that's what we watched. We watched Rick Williams and Monica Melpass yeah. and, um, you know, there's, and again, so maybe I have, I have some like sentimental baggage here, but it's so true, you know? Yeah. I have a picture of myself with Rick Williams at the please touch museum when I was four years old. Oh, that's so and cool. then I later became his coworker. Oh man. So it's, it's true. I mean, Rick's been there for like 30, 31 years. Jim Gardner has been there almost 45 years. Yeah. Um, it's, an, it, it is, it's truly, and I know this because I've met um, individuals from other TV stations across our country and 6ABC and Philly is really looked at as this unique uh, gem in its community compared to the roles that some other stations play in their communities. Mm. Oh, that's great. That's that's really great. Um, so, and, so where are you living now? Are you living in South Jersey? Yep. I'm still home and, uh, you know, next, you know, two, three years I'll uh, looking to get my own place and of course uh, stay in this community because this is the community I care about. So I don't see myself really um, going to a different market or anything like that. I, this is this is home for me. Yeah, you know? oh, that's great. And, and no shame, no shame in still living at home. I lived with my parents until I think I was 25. Yeah, 25 maybe. Yeah, I'll be 25 this year. Yeah, so. uh, and you I was know, like, there's, I'm there's money. a waste of money. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So your your charge um in this in this job this community journalist job um and have they by the way they've added they've since added members to that uh to that uh role i'm assuming you're not the only that's right there's yep there's three community journalists now in philly and there's about 25 30 i want to say across the all of abc's own television stations oh cool cool so did they tell you specifically they wanted you to um that this was going to be exclusively uh, good news, good news, you know, feature type material. Yeah, that was the goal, especially at first. And then I feel like every community journalist has their own uh, niche that they were giving creative freedom to lean into. So um, I still do only good positive news. You know, sometimes I'll, sometimes my news is a little bit harder uh, than most of my other content. And, but it still, it has this uh, good news quality to it, you know? Um, but the other community journalists at our station, uh, they their interests lie in being hard news reporters, um, even maybe investigative, and they are uh, given the opportunity to go out there and and act as a general assignment reporter. Mm. You know, sometimes they even get a camera person and they'll be on the breaking scene of a fire or something like that, and uh, they're given that opportunity because that's where they see growth with the 
the company in that direction, you know, and I see growth in more of the uh, positive news generating content, uh, evergreen content for our digital platforms and really growing that base of uh, content that people can watch on demand. Mm. And, and that's, uh, the industry is definitely trending in that direction as well. Uh, it, everybody is is looking for ways to connect with people where they watch their content. And a lot of people are getting it streaming on demand, you know, with the fire stick and the Apple TV and the Netflix and everything. So we want to do that as well. We want to, we want people to stop watching Netflix and watch six ABCs app, mm-hmm. you know, so that's going to require a lot of evergreen content creation. And that's where I see myself going with the company. And you, you said um, that you recently completed your 500th, story that's right it was uh insane two years (laughs) 500 and to give folks a a sense and i'm definitely going to uh, i haven't really figured out my my show notes process just yet but i am going to have links to a lot of the pieces you sent me because i really want people to to see this work but they're they're short um usually between I, i was gathering like two minutes um Two and a half minutes, kind of. Yeah, seems- about ninety seconds is is the benchmark. Sometimes I go a little longer. Okay, yeah, and and they are these self contained uh, stories, whether it's a profile of somebody or a sort of larger collection of people participating in in something positive. Um, and it is when I try to wrap my head around producing five hundred of those in two years. That's astounding. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy to me. I never thought I'd be doing one per day, you know, because I, I had such a deliberate, careful approach to how I did every story. And I've really been challenged to consolidate that process into just an hour or two, you know, um, and that's what I'm doing now every day. Yeah. So what what is it? Do you I'm curious about the process. Um, are you do you come up with all of these story ideas? Are you given assignments? Is it a combination of the two? It's definitely a combination because we have a great network of uh, assignment editors and just other reporters generally that are constantly uh, pitching stories to all all of us as a team. And the funny thing is that when this job was created, it kind of had this, uh, in Philly specifically, had the approach of, you know, there's so many good news stories that we have to turn down on the day planner just because we don't have the manpower to do it. What if we had one person who was designated to do that story that we would have had to throw out otherwise? And so uh, that's become my job. You know, I pitch a lot of my stories and I get a lot of them from our team and I try to set them up in advance and hope that they work out the following day or, or whenever I plan them. And we do one a day. So I could, I could have a situation where the event that I'm covering doesn't start until 12 and my piece is airing in the four o'clock news. Mm. And that's a crunch. Or I could have something where it starts at 9 a.m. and it's airing on the six o'clock news. And that's a different story. But it's really different every day. I find myself meeting different kinds of people and going to different kinds of places every day. And that's been the most rewarding part. Mm. Does every piece air every day? Like, Because some of them, like you said, are are evergreen. Um, I would imagine that maybe they're a little more flexible. Like, Is one of your pieces on 6ABC every day in some manifestation or another? Yeah, it's funny. Like when I first started this job, it was like exclusively digital content. And then out of nowhere, like once every week or so, the producers would say, can you give me like a 90 second version of this? Because I really like it and I want to air it. And then a couple months later, that became, all right, we're airing your story every day. Every day. Wow. So I'm like, really, like I wasn't expecting this at all. So 
now I went from having no plans to air on television to now I'm my story's airing every day, five days a week. That's crazy. <sighs> and it, that really is what it has become. Uh, unless there's breaking news, they might save a story for the following morning or something like that. But generally speaking, uh, every day I am a, a servant to the news team and also our, our digital team. So we want my content to go everywhere. Wow. Wow. So can you tell me what's, what, what today's, um, assignment is? I mean, this isn't going to be actually off today. So, oh, okay. Okay, good, good. Yeah. But uh, you know, last, uh, Sunday, uh, my, the last day I worked was Sunday and I did a story about uh, a gentleman who created a Valentine's day blood drive in honor of his wife who passed away at 39 from leukemia, which is just unimaginable oh, God. Um, with two young kids and, you know, having to, you know, swallow, swallow a hard pill to talk to that gentleman on camera was, is difficult. But, uh, the day before that I did a huge, uh, you know, festival through uh, main street and Maniunk and how they were having a socially distant, uh, event to stimulate local businesses and, and carve ice sculptures for all the businesses and bring people in to, for kind of a, a much needed family event. Mm. And then over the course of the last year, I've been able to cover um, even protests in a positive way. I One of my favorite stories was a musical protest that took place on the steps of the art museum. And it was just a, a, a gentleman who, uh, you know, was a musician all his life and brought together all of his musician friends. And they had a literal impromptu concert, like no planning, just, you know, played a chord progression or whatever. And then everybody followed suit and they broke out into solos and everything like that. And even a story like that, where there's so many people involved, I find that to, there to be such value in focusing on one person as a, a central character to kind of begin and end the piece with, and then throw in a couple MOS in the middle. So you have that compelling case for why this is a story before you hear what exactly it is that they're doing that mm. is newsworthy. Mm. And so I, I find that th I find there's a routine for me where I'm always, even if the story is not about a person, I'm looking for a person to make that story about, to, to have it, like we, like we said earlier, the human experience is what it's all about. So how can people relate to this human's experience and, and why should they care before we tell them what to care about? Mm. That, that totally resonates having seen your stuff. And again, I'm going to encourage everybody to, to, uh, to check out your work because that's, that is, that's the aesthetic that comes across. And it struck me in watching your pieces that, you know, it, journalists are, are a cynical bunch, man. Right. I mean, and, and in many respects, I, I totally understand why. And I think that a, a healthy amount of maybe not cynicism, but, but skepticism is, right. you know, very, uh, healthy in this profession. I think that to do some types of journalism, you'd need to approach the world with complete skepticism, uh, and be shown otherwise. That's like kind of part of what we do as, as journalists. And, and that when it comes to quote unquote, good news. I know that I've experienced a lot of it that can feel sort of forced or overly sentimental, uh, maybe saccharine even, but your <laughs> stories, they feel so natural. They feel so organic. They feel more akin to something that, you know, in a different package you might get on, you know, like NPR or, you know, something like this American life. Um, so I, I guess I'm, I'm curious, like how you feel like you, uh, elicit that kind of feeling that, so that it doesn't feel overly sentimental or forced, but instead feels kind of natural and organic. 
Well, I definitely have an answer for this because when I first started this job, uh, I came directly from an internship with our marketing department. So I had only ever been producing content that was designed to jump out at people and say, hey, hey, look at me. And it almost became like I was going everywhere and making commercials for people's stories as opposed to telling uh, the story. And I guess it took me about a year to really uh, come down to earth and figure out that formula. And maybe it was even a little bit of the uh, the gloom that came along with the pandemic that made me um, relax into a more natural storytelling flow because I felt like that was only appropriate for the the nature of the circumstances. But it, it's something that I did not I did not have when I started the job. It's mm. something that came naturally after a recursive process of just watching my work over and over again, seeing what worked, what didn't, what happened too fast, what was out of order. And the way that I've found the formula to work now, and it is a formula, even though that the the stories turn out so different from each other, I do have a formula. So I, I typically start with uh, a sound effect or a sound to in, introduce you into the space that we're living in for this story. Um, if not that, then I just have to, to choose something else. But whether it maybe it's like a, a, a story about a litter of puppies and I start the piece with the puppies, mm. you know, whimpering, that would be a way to introduce it. Uh, then I look for a main character and that main character, instead of having them tell you first and foremost what it is. So instead of them saying, this is a program that uh, raises puppies to become working dogs and, and do search and detection for police forces. Instead of that, I start the piece by having that person almost wax poetically a little bit about why they love puppies and why these puppies in particular are, are so useful and will go on to live lives of service. So that's the way the piece begins. And then roughly two-fifths of the way through, whether that's 10 or 25 seconds into the piece, there is a, a, a click, a turning point, a, 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 an elbow piece of a puzzle as opposed to just a, a middle piece mm. and it's where it all makes sense why this is a story and may, maybe that is when i throw in the quote the working dog center has been around for you know 10 years and it was inspired by the dogs that served in the aftermath of 9-11 like that now i know why this is a story but i before that moment occurs i try to find something that can relate to everyone whether or not you care about dogs that work with police officers. You know what I mean? So I make you care before we tell you what we want you to care about. And so throughout the whole piece, um, I use a lot of natural sound. I'm looking for all different kinds of sound effects, uh, something from as loud as dogs barking to as small as uh, when the dog catches a tennis ball or when the, the its owner pats on their legs and says come here good girl or something like that mm -hmm. i'm looking for all the the smallest little sounds with all the these these richness and textures that make it feel homey make it feel like natural maybe something that you would hear in your home uh to relate it to people because when we think of how many senses we can appeal to when we create content it's not just sight right and of course it's not just sound either i feel like there's this there's this texture to it that you can add um through combining uh, sight and sound mm. together mm. that makes people uh, think of something or evoke a reaction, uh, something in their life. So I'm, I, instead of making something that is, is purely robotic and cold and s purely factual, I'm looking for something that is just natural and relative to 
the human experience. And like I said, like you mentioned, it's not forced. It's not a, it's not supposed to be a commercial. I typically don't start with music unless I have to, but you know, I'm, I'm not trying to sell you something. I'm trying to give you a window into that person's emotions. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think, I hope that answers your question. And I, I like to hope that that's why my pieces come out that way, or at least I hope that they do come out that way. Yeah. I should say that. You no, know, they, they most certainly do. And, and it's something that I talk to my students a lot about in, in various classes where um, I, I use this phrase in my magazine writing class in particular, when they set out to do a profile of somebody I always emphasize to them, this is not a press release about how awesome this person is, (laughs) right? Because it's very easy. And I understand students, you know, not under, not just immediately getting that line between, you know, boosterism and journalism, um, that, and, and I try to give them techniques to tell stories. I say, look, you, you, you can tell the story of somebody who's done some amazing things and it feels great, but let us let the reader or the viewer in your case get there naturally not not and not feel like the journalistic entity is saying to you hey sit up you need to know how great this person is don't you think this person's great don't you think this person's great uh it has to be something that you come to feel and in watching your pieces i definitely had that experience uh Thank you. And I have a great example of a teaching moment with that as well, because it it was last February when I was assigned to do a story about um, a trolley, a SEPTA trolley that decorates for holidays and they decorated for Valentine's Day. So the whole pitch of the story was hop on the love trolley or something (laughs) like that. And, and that's kind of, that was in the back of my head as I told that story, as I was, as I went there to film it and I'm, you know, filming you know cute angles of all the different decorations and the people on board and trying to get them to say corny things and um i interviewed the driver and i used a lot of his uh quotes and things like that during uh the piece but when we watched back and saw how it performed i was like why did this not do as good as this other story and some of our digital producers told me well the thumbnail and the title don't evoke a human thing they evoke a, a material thing right hop on the valentine trolley mm-hmm. the picture of the thumbnail is a picture of the trolley what if i made that whole story about the gentleman who rides the trolley has been doing so for decades and decorates it every holiday what if he was in the title what if he was in the thumbnail mm-hmm. and i thought that's it's so obvious like how did i miss that mm-hmm. and that's one of those you know it's not a failure but it's a it's a teaching moment hmm. where I wish I would have done it differently, and I never let another good character go to waste after that day. Hmm. That's such an excellent anecdote. It really, because it it, it 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 really epitomizes the exact thing that that we're talking about. Find find the human stuff. Um, find where 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 that's taking place. That's where the story is. And, and sometimes, yeah, you have to sometimes look at, at something sideways, especially if it's something that does have kind of like marketing or uh, sort of an event ethos around it where, you know, right. the people in charge clearly want to promote a certain, uh, a certain aesthetic or a certain something uh, much more sort of in that marketing type space. Sometimes you got to look at it sideways and say, wait a minute, no, 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 no. The story's about the driver or the story's about, you know, some, yeah. somebody who is a, a more, you know, quote unquote, like minor player in this. Uh, that's great. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. 
And you can't always tell the story that the PR person wants you to tell. No, 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 (laughs) no. In fact, I tell students that if you get approached, if, if the beginning of a, if you get a story lead from, from a, a PR person, um, one of your first thoughts should be, okay, what are some alternative angles to this? And, and it, exactly. I'm not saying a hundred percent of the time that the PR person is, is wrong in their assessment, but a lot of times, a lot of times it's like, it's, that's not the story I want to tell as a journalist. That's the story you want to get across as a PR person, but that's not what's most interesting journalistically. Um, exactly. so the, I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the, the technical side of things and and then the more sort of emotional side of things. You said that you, you sometimes use up to, what, six different cameras on a on a story? That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And does that, I mean, I'm assuming that includes your, your drone footage uh, being an FAA right. certified drone pilot. Uh, I did not know that. That's pretty cool. Um, that was a process. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that that is actually kind of... That's a, that is a process. Yeah. When did that happen? When did you get that accreditation? Yeah. So, uh, last year, uh, around this time last year, I noticed that we had a, a couple certified pilots, maybe 10 of them. And I went up to my boss and I said, I want to fly a drone. And he's kind of laughed at me. He's like, it's really complicated. I'm like, all right, well, the next time you're up for something complicated, you know, with the next time you're doing a wave of this, I want in. And so we had to do, make a long story short, we had to do two uh, day long classes on the ground before we were allowed to touch a drone. I had to take a two hour long test that I got like a 94 on, which was, I wanted a higher score, let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> but 94, I, I settled uh, with how much I studied for it. And then we had to go down to Virginia and spend two full days actually learning how to fly the drone. And then you, there's a lot of upkeep involved. So probably uh, after we talk today, I'm going to go out and fly for hopefully an hour because you have to fly a certain amount of hours. Um, every two months in accordance with our policy here at Disney. But yeah, all of that for maybe, you know, get to use it once every once a month, if I'm lucky Mm. with how many, uh, with with the way the situations have to be perfect with the location and the weather and everything like that. But that's one of my cameras. Uh, I also use, um, of course, our electronic news gathering camera that provided by the station. Uh, Sometimes I use uh, a secondary camera for detail shots. Uh, I have a GoPro that I can connect to, uh, a myriad of uh, attachments, whether it's a suction cup to put on a car or a strap to put on my head or on my shoulder or something like that. Or I can, you know, remove it from an accessory and stick it in a really small place, like in a bag where you're sticking hoagies in the bag. Mm. Um, I also have a, a little a pocket stabilizer tool. So it slips right in my pocket and I can run with it and get a really st- steady shot with that. Uh, and of course, my cell phone. People are uh, resorting to cell phone footage. Uh, more than ever, I feel like it's tolerated more than ever. Uh, people will tolerate uh, bad video more than they'll tolerate bad audio. We find, and oh, that's uh, so true. The cell phone video can can look great. I have an Android phone that does ultra wide shots, and I love to use that for you know really wide stuff. Where I'll even get really close to the person, but go extra wide, so you see a lot of them and a lot of behind them as well. So it's all different storytelling elements of how many different. Um, how much information we can convey with one angle and we try to convey information with an angle whether it's uh, literal information or if it's contextual information like people cheersing with a bottle of uh, two glasses of uh, beer and they're smiling and and they take a swig you know that's information as well as people enjoying themselves yeah you know and what you say about um, cell phones I, i just recently got the newest um 
iPhone, which is not a flex. I, I was, <laughs> it was part of actually saving, <laughs> saving money and, and rebudgeting our cell phone plans anyway. Um, and I was fooling around with it the night I got it. And I, I was like, oh my God, this shoots 60 frames per second HD video. And I was just taking some just, you know, shots of my son and, and, and I'm playing them back and could not believe the quality. And I, and I thought back to my days in film school when a friend of mine maxed out like three different credit cards for like four grand to buy a, a Canon XL one, which at the time was the, the top of the line digital video. And this was like 2001, 2002. And, you know, here he, he had to spend four grand on this thing that my phone now would put to shame. Uh, it's just staggering to me. Staggering. Yeah, the phone can do great things. It can do time lapse. It can do slow motion. And there's so many different utilities with it. The only thing it doesn't do well is like depth of field. So that's why I use like a detail camera mm -hmm. to, to show the difference in, in space between two things with like a rack focus or something like that. Yeah, but they still yeah, haven't the quite figured that out. They, they still <laughs> haven't quite figured out the depth of field issue. Um, so when you show up to uh, to, to whatever it is that you're, you're covering, uh, I'm assuming that you kind of have to figure out on the spot what your sort of visual uh, approach is going to be. Yeah, that's right. Um, so let's talk, say, for instance, uh, musical protest, right? I wanted to hit that from all different angles. And sometimes I even forget to show the bigger picture. I forget to back up a little uh, bit sometimes. Yeah. But, um, you know, I have a camera on a tripod that's getting uh, very still shots because I find that you need some still shots to ground the viewer or they're going to feel like I'm all over the place. So uh, that gives me a nice mix of just stable, still or even just slow panning shots. And then, you know, I, I have the GoPro in my hand that I'm like sticking it in the guy's saxophone and I'm pulling it out and doing creative transitions with that. And, or I'm like, you know, on my knees and I'm uh, put my hand beneath the symbol of the drummer and I'm showing him banging on the drums from the perspective of maybe his shoe or his foot. So I'm always mm -hmm. looking for different angles to capture things with. Um, that particular story, I probably only used uh, two cameras because the situational awareness is is something as well. You don't want to leave your equipment out uh, anywhere and you, you need to make sure that you're not getting pushed around. And there's other places where I'm just like in a little building and it's just a quaint little place. And, um, you know, I have complete control of the situation and maybe I'll use like four cameras just to, you know, lay everything out the way that I want it. But yeah, it can, it can get situational when it comes to which equipment you want to use. Well, and, and the, the visual component that you bring to these pieces was one of the things that just struck me right away. I thought the, these could be stories told in a much more sort of one dimensional way. And, mm -hmm. and I was starting to see the things that you were doing visually, whether it was uh, the story of the boy who was doing the, the car washes and, little things like having him spray the, the Windex into the camera, right? So it's like hitting the, yeah. the lens. Um, or there was a shot, the story about the, the guy in Philly who does haircuts for the homeless. Yeah. There's a shot where he's trimming the guy's beard and it's slow-mo and you're seeing the beard hair fluttering into the air and it, and yeah. something that some people might think that sounds really gross, but it was, it was actually like beautiful. It, it was like yeah. snowfall or something. And 
you, you just, your, your understanding of what makes these stories visually compelling is, um, is just really impressive to see. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just I'm always looking for the, the different angle. And we talk about this with the other community journalists a lot. They always ask me, like, how do you know what to film? And I'm like, well, whatever you would film with the conventional wisdom, like do the opposite. Right. So I'm like, I, I see other stories of that 11 year old car cleaner. And it's, you know, the guys on a tripod and he's pointing right at the car. Like, all right, that's yeah. that's one angle. Like I need a hundred angles. So I'm going in the car. You know, I don't want to point at the car. I want to go in the car and I want to shoot from, like I said earlier, start from within and move out instead of, you know, just shooting from the outside only. Yeah. And yeah, like just with the GoPro so unique because it's waterproof and I can have the kids spray the GoPro and just wipe it off and it's fine. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, the more you do stories like that, like within cars, like I, you know, reuse ideas and things like that, but it's a part of it stems from the fact that I need to make a 90 second long piece that needs to have a, a good pace to it. And that means changing the angle every couple seconds or on a certain beat. Or I look for hard consonant sounds maybe, or a, a comma or a shift in the person's tone to change the, the uh, actual visual on top of that. And so I need all those shots. So how many different ways can I point a camera at this thing is, is sort of where it starts. Mm. And and also I was thinking too when you were describing some of the stuff you did at the uh, at the music protest um, and how you you know you're you're getting right up into people's spaces and I thought here oh, yeah. here again it's like there's no room for you know bashfulness or anxiety <laughs> like you know you got to just get in there. Um, That's exactly right. And sometimes they're like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "Just you'll you'll see later. Right. Just don't worry about right. it." Oh man, so from the technical side of things to the the sort of uh, more emotional side of things when you you mentioned covering a story on i guess it was sunday the 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 blood drive story that was on su- right. on sunday you covered that um yeah. and you said it was it was a husband who lost his wife or a wife that lost her husband it was a husband who lost his wife just 2 years ago yeah uh, she was only 39 so even though these are again good news. They're positive stories. As I was watching a lot of your clips, I thought, well, just because they're positive doesn't mean that they're emotionally easy. And I, I imagine that, um, well, I'm curious, how how do you navigate that space and how has it evolved over time in navigating the emotional landscape of these stories? It's such a great point because you can't have joy without pain. You can't have uh, happiness without sadness. And so a lot of my stories, even though they are categorized as feel good, they stem from a place of hardship or trial because that just makes the good news part of it that much sweeter. So when we talked about earlier how these things just can't just be a commercial and say, hey, hey, look at me, that's a one-dimensional emotion. That's a one-dimensional approach. You're not getting the pain that makes that joy a reward. And when you think about it, when you're writing a novel or a movie or a screenplay, right? Like there's conflict, even though there's a, it could be a happy ending, but there's conflict. And naturally uh, the universe writes it, writes its own conflict, right? That story that we did Sunday, even though it had a feel good news approach to it, where we're collecting blood for people who need it, it came out of a tragedy. And so how do you, uh, how do you really 
articulate that tragedy in a way that is respectful and then use it as a platform to to launch into this is something good that we're doing and you know you, you let his emotions guide it sometimes sometimes the way that they explain it chronologically just works perfectly you know uh, sometimes it doesn't but sometimes it does so maybe uh the the gentleman will say um maybe it'll start by him saying how terrible it was to lose his wife. And then he'll say after that, uh, I, maybe I'll ask him, why did you decide to do a blood drive of all things? And then he'll say, well, you know, the need for blood is, is incredible. You know, it, it's so important that we give. And, and maybe that's what I, that's the emotion that I use to start it maybe. And then I tell you uh, what happened to him. But I, I like to start with that. Uh, I don't, don't stray too far from the crux of it, right? I, the emotional part really starts at the beginning, mm. but there's all different ways that you can approach it. And I, I feel like you can't have joy without pain. So even in the musical protest, there is pain written in that story two, twofold, you know, almost all the subtext is pain, but the visuals are are happy and they're joy. And that makes it dynamic. Mm. It's like, it's not one dimensional. It's two or three or four dimensional in that way. And it's almost weird because how do you put um, feel-good footage on top of uh, a downtrodden subject matter that the person's talking about? And sometimes it just happens to work. It, there's there is pain and joy, and there is joy and sadness. Mm. So, what's the most what what story over the last two years was most emotionally challenging for you? Like, and I'm not saying that you know. Some, you you have to have a story where you broke down and cried, but one where you felt like there was a lot going on emotionally that was maybe challenging for you to process or challenging for you to translate into uh, one of your pieces. Well, I think there's always difficulty in speaking with someone who's lost a loved one because I try to downplay myself as much as possible. I don't want them to feel like, hey, the big happy news guy is here with the with the camera and he's going to stick a microphone in my face and be unsympathetic. Right. So something like when I did interview that gentleman on, on Sunday, I kind of, I try to step back and relax my posture and let him know that I am open to hearing his, his heart. Basically. Um, I don't try to bounce around too much and say, I need you to say this. You know, I, I try to, I let it happen very slowly and casually so that happens a lot. It's difficult to to speak with someone who lost um, a loved one, and even even the the COVID survivor stories that I did last year, while they were triumphant, you're talking to people who have been stuck in the hospital for months, you know, or a, a wife that was worried that they were going to lose their loved one and and finally gets to see them after all this time, you know. But I think that one of the stories that that works so well emotionally, especially recently was uh, a gentleman named Barney Corrigan who decided uh, he worked he worked as a chef. He was a caterer and he lost all of his work uh, during the pandemic. He had just moved into a new house with his four kids. Uh, I think there's four, right? One, two, three. Yeah, I think there's four. And if he basically decided that instead of looking for work, I'm going to open up my garage to the people who are hungry and in need right now. And he did it every week and his story blew up, you know, NJ.com did it. We did it. And we got a half a million views on our page. He wound up getting national recognition for it. He was on every morning show. Drew Barrymore gave him $10,000. Wow. But I watched every other story that that covered him. And it was really 
that outside in perspective. And I wanted to tell his story from the inside out. And so I started with him, a very emotional talking about how it's not right that people need to make a decision between whether they pay their electric bill or if they go shopping to feed their kids that day. And he was tearing up and, you know, you lean into that. You don't, you don't, you know, make a jump out with exciting music and, and make it bounce around and put flowers on it. But it's an emotion that's real and that so many people are going through. And you had a lot of stories that covered him failed to cover the people that came to his pantry. And I watched Mm -hmm. a lot of them and I found that mine was the only one where I actually interviewed people who were going there, who were in need. And I found that there were people who went to his pantry that had previously visited to donate things who now found themselves in positions where they needed, they Mm -hmm. needed to, to take from his pantry. And it's hard to ask that person to be vulnerable on camera, but you have to be very down to earth with them and say, uh, listen, we're, we're, we want more people to know about this. We know there's a need out there and we think that your story, your perspective will make it real for a lot of people and they will, and they open up, you know, they'll be honest. And that was the one thing I felt that my story did that others didn't was that it's not just, Hey, Hey, look at this guy. He's so good. He did a, really generous thing it's look at this guy he's he's struggling himself and he opened up his door and now look at the people who he's helping they're normal people just like you they look like you they act like you they have similar jobs to you it could be you one day right yeah oh boy that's some that's really some next level thinking about approaching these stories it's something that i try to as I, as I've said throughout our conversation, conveying a lot of this to my students, and I don't expect them to just get it uh, even over the course of an entire semester, um, because it's something that, um, yeah, just you you. I think some people have a, a natural instinct for that understanding, and I think that that it's clear that you you bring that natural instinct to this, but also refining it over time. Uh, and, and in dealing with these stories, it's so, it is tempting when you, when you're faced with a subject who is suffering or who has experienced suffering to one of two extremes, either lean so hard into the suffering that it becomes almost exploitative yeah. or to, to just not want to go there to, to, to like, let's just keep this focused on the most happy elements yeah. that we can, you know, and finding that middle ground is very difficult but you're definitely, you're definitely there. Thanks. I, th- I think the middle ground can be just change, that there is change within the piece. You know, it starts with, with that emotion and that suffering, and then you see things start to open up, and you see the smiles and the high fives, and the thing, it starts to get brighter. So it's like, it's, it's as beautifully written as a cloudy day where the sun comes out. You know, <laughs> there, is, there is emotion there that is different from just a day that's all cloudy or a day that's just all sunny. There's something that changes in the story and hopefully it creates change in you. Excellent, excellent analogy. Um, as, as much as I, <laughs> I'm loath to, to have a, a, a COVID angle here at all because I'm just <laughs> tired, just so tired of, of it in, infusing itself into every aspect. But I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask like how, you know, here you are a year in uh, to covering positive stories and, and, and really trying to embrace, the, you know, the good things that people uh, do for one another. 
and COVID comes along. And in particular, you know, I'm curious about what the first few months were like, because I, I know from my perspective, uh, it, it was very emotionally challenging. My wife and I are very fortunate in, in that we were secure and we didn't have a lot of the worries that so many people have had either economically or, or medically. But nonetheless, just the pervasive, uh, you know, global anxiety in like March, April, May um, was was extremely difficult to handle. And I'm curious when you add a layer to that of being somebody who was specifically tasked with finding positive stories, what those first few months were like. Well, the first few months, I think that before it got sobering, um, it was really a challenge of how do we how do we continue to do this job? You know, f- forget how we cover the story. How do we still do it? And so we struggled with getting people to interview on Zoom. And then having them take their own B-roll and send it to me. I mean, I went from having eight minutes of B-roll for my story to three pictures. Like I had nothing to use. And I I was begging people to film themselves doing this and doing that. And sometimes they would do it right. And sometimes they wouldn't. And I wouldn't have enough to to use. And it got down to me being uh, creative with it. I would, I would like go out and put my camera, like if I did a story about like a, like a nature thing. I would go out and I put my phone down in the grass or in a bed of flowers and I would superimpose the zoom interview onto that phone. So I would put the person in a space mm. uh, to have a, di- a different, like something visually to shake it up. You know, I did a story on an art group that came out of the pandemic and I, I drew uh, on my sidewalk with chalk and I put my computer on the sidewalk and you see like this box of chalk and all these different designs on the ground and the computer is sitting in that space. Mm. Um, that's so but cool. to be honest, yeah, it, it it was cool for a while, but it was really hard. And I'm really happy to be back in person again. But when it comes to how do we tell the story, I mean, the story tells itself. So many things happened, even good things happened as a result of the pandemic, that it's almost like every single story I've done since it started has been touched by it in some way. Yeah. And everybody has its own angle. I, I was going to ask you if you were ever cognizant of not wanting or you know it it is it's almost impossible to avoid but at a certain point kind of making sure that like not every story was was framed in the covid context like was that ever like a a thought or a discussion like I'm, i'm assuming that you know in the early days it was completely unavoidable but as things progressed um was there ever discussion about okay like let's tr- you know let's not make the pandemic a central figure in all of these stories yeah i mean i think about that a lot and i try to find the angle that's not related to the pandemic but like to be honest like even let's say the 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 festival i did on saturday mm. on Ma- in manionk they they had the it's a thing that they do every year but they had to do it differently this year and it's so much more important this year because they need to stimulate business in the colder months so that is the story. I mean, it, it, that's more compelling than just a profile on people drinking beer. Mm. Yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's 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 like this. The pandemic has become the story in a lot of different ways. But you know, I try to make it a small part um, if it if it can be a small part. I remember I was I was laughing at myself. Like the one story that I did where it had nothing to do with it at all. 
like it, it was totally independent of the pandemic and could have been a story without it was two brothers who came together and set a, a world record for the longest hot dog toss. <laughs> like they, so, but even then, like they decided to do that cause they were bored during the pandemic. Uh-huh. So it wouldn't have happened without it. So it's like, when you think about it, almost every person's way of life has been altered or changed because of it. And it's, it's pervasive in a sense that, um, it almost has to be part of the story because that's the most compelling part of it almost oh, yeah. for, for a lot of them. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, here the, on a meta level, like here we are talking about the pandemic, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it, you can't, you can't not, uh, in, in many respects. Um, yeah, I totally get that. So when you look towards the future, um, what like you said you want to stay here you you're you want to be rooted in in the south jersey area you want to you know be rooted in in 6abc do you have the desire to expand the type of journalism you're doing uh at some point or are you more or less just happy doing this right now and it's all good like what what do you think about when you look towards the, the future well i think that what i do right now has uh potential you know i feel like you know, my every day I'm contributing to the news and that's an immediate need that I'm fulfilling. And that's like, um, you know, the, the paycheck part of the job. It's like, they need me to do something. They need to fill time on the news. I'm making a story for the day. I think that there is potential in making in perhaps doing less stories, but making them longer and making them um, more dynamic. You know, there's so many stories I do where I said that could be a whole five minute feature, or that could be its own series where we follow that person for example, Barney Corrigan with the food pantry in his garage. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be something where we follow him over the course of time and see how it grows. You know, I would love to just um, dive deeper into the long form content aspect of it. Right now, I'm fulfilling a role. I'm, I'm a you know daily reporter that puts together a piece for the news. Um, as we move into the future, where we are trying to meet the consumer, um, where they prefer to be as opposed to asking them to come on to our television station there's going to be a need for more content on those streaming platforms on our social media pages and i feel like we're at, at the forefront of it now and you know 20 30 years from now that'll be the story of how we developed it and sustained the broadcast industry in a world where broadcasting is no longer over the airwaves but it's directly into your connected television app mm-hmm. that uh, you know that exists alongside Netflix and Hulu. So that's where I see it going, and that's where I hope I can contribute. Is uh, how do we get people to stay on those apps and um, keep coming back to us for that content that they know is unique because it is local and because it is good. Do you see yourself continuing to lean into the positive story aesthetic? I do. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think I could take myself seriously enough to report hard news. You know, I really, I, I, I feel like doing it in the sense where I'm not a part of the story has allowed me to step back and, and, you know, still be skeptic, still be a little bit cynical, but not be too self-important. You know, I've done 500 of these stories already and none of them have been about me and none of them need to be about me nor do they need to include me. So I feel like that's where I'm, I'm trending towards is really giving people the power to almost claim ownership in a way of uh, the type of content they watch because they get to be a part of it and they get to kind of 
pioneer it with their own voice. Mm. I think that's unique um, in the industry. We'll see if it works. But for me, at least, that's what I love to do. And that's what's most rewarding for me. Uh, how, how now being a, an actual journalist for two years, how is, um, how is being a journalist different from what you thought it would be like when you were still in school at Rowan? Well, I thought that it would be, um, I thought that it would be something I didn't like as much as I wanted to, huh? because I really didn't want to be that, um, on the ground like going to a news conference and reporting back the info. Like I never liked that. And that really wasn't the the reason behind my decision to take a journalism degree. It was more that I wanted to, to tell uh, good stories in the way that I have. So the fact that it all fell into place and I'm working in the field alongside those people, but I have my own little corner of it is really like just cosmic in a way. Like I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do. And it didn't even exist when I had started working here. So in a sense, it's better than I thought it would be. Um, and I think that it, I, I'm not I'm not as abrasive to it. Like I, I feel very comfortable introducing myself to people and making friends with them. Like I feel like I always come away having made a new friend every time I do a story. And I didn't know if it was going to be like that. I thought it would be a little bit more cold. And maybe it is for a lot of people who just do that hard news element. But I mean, I have, there are people that I meet, even if they're just random men on the street that I interview, I tell them to follow me on Instagram to watch the full story. And they come back and they like every post when I make a new one, mm -hmm. like they really follow you. And I feel like I have been at, in a very slow and behind the scenes way, embedding myself into the community and getting people to learn who I am. And that has been so cool. So it's in in many, many ways better than I thought it would be. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Is Instagram your, your primary social media uh, outlet? Yeah, I mean, Instagram and my Facebook page have the most traffic. Uh, we, we actually try to post my video on my Facebook page and then share it to our main page so that people can start to learn who I am. Because when they air my story on television, they say my name, but you don't see my face. So it's kind of like a... I, I'm this secret character in a sitcom where you hear them all the time and <laughs> you never, never see who they are. So I meet people out on the street that's like, you're Mateo. I hear your name all the time and I love your work. And that's so cool to me because I never thought that people would, would remember as much, you know? Yeah. So it's been so rewarding all around. Oh, that's really, that's great. How can people find you on Instagram and Facebook? Yeah, please. Uh, everywhere is six ABC Mateo. It's one word, six ABC uh, the number six, ABC. And then my name is spelled M-A-T-T-E-O, two T's. And um, I encourage uh, faculty, but also especially students to follow me and reach out because um, they, they always say it's not what you know, it's who you know, but you meet who you know because of what you know. And so, um, you know, you listening to this podcast and, and pursuing this career in journalism will be able to introduce you to people. And I hope that I can be one of those people that you stay in touch with and uh, reach out to if you have any advice or even just want me to look at something that you made and give some feedback. I, I'm always, always happy to talk with uh, not only you and, and, and faculty and staff, but especially younger students, because if there's anything I can do to uh, mitigate some of those mistakes that I made when I was in that position, then they might have an even better chance than I did, mm. you know? 
So final question. Um, and again, this is one that if you don't have an answer, don't feel pressured to formulate one. Um, any ways in which you think critically of journalism these days? Yeah, I think um, sometimes journalists, I guess maybe at the, the very tippy top level, can have this, um, I, I don't want to say like snootiness or air about them or something like that. Um, and, and I kind of try to be the opposite of that. I try to say like, like I'm a journalist and like that doesn't mean that I'm a special person. You know, that just means that I point a camera at special people. Yeah. So I, I would like to see journalists, uh, the, the whole industry as a whole, kind of have a more humble approach about it and, you know, not become the story, you know, and, and obviously at the very top, you have like, you know, cable news networks or whatever, and the reporter is the story, you know, people want to watch a talking head because they relate to that person. And that's fine. You know, um, for me personally, I find it to be much more honest and rewarding personally when I straight up admit that I am not the special person in this equation. And I just, I'm, I'm the bridge between the special people and the people who want to watch special people be special. And uh, that's, that's, that's one thing. Um, I don't know if I had anything else off the top of my head. Um, maybe just, I think that there's a rush for information and that rush can mean that sometimes we have inaccurate information coming out and uh, I hate to see that. And, um, yeah, I just hate to see like the, I guess, cronyism or, or politics becoming part of journalism. Um, you know, I like to to remain a very neutral and honest standpoint. And that's not much to say coming from someone who doesn't cover hard news, but that's just the way I see it, kind of being half in, half out on that equation. Uh, I I always try to to take the humble approach and let people tell the story themselves. I'm very encouraged to hear you say that because it, it's it's a major critique of mine too, and it's one of it's another reason why I have my students edit themselves out because I know that they may fall back on the cliche of national media where we just assume that uh, you know if if you know you grew up watching CNN or Fox or MSNBC what have you. You just assume that, oh, well, to be a journalist means that I've got to be Anderson Cooper. Or I've got to be Wolf Blitzer. I've got to be right. that you, you know, <laughs> that you aspire to to like a celebrity status almost more than you do to a, a you know, a robust journalism, you know. Exactly. Uh, well, Mateo, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I ha have to say I, I am so remarkably impressed by your success. Um, but I'm Thank also, you. but I'm also not surprised you, you were, <laughs> you, you produced some work in my course, uh, in my courses that, uh, that, that was really just above and beyond, um, what, what I would have expected. And hopefully I conveyed that to you as much to you when you were a student. Um, and, but more so than that, it's not just the technical stuff it's, and getting to spend this time with you has just, um, reaffirmed my instincts that the way you think about this work and the uh, the type of mindfulness that you bring to to these projects and to to the work of journalism in general is just spot on and and I'm I'm incredibly happy and excited by your success and uh, it's been great to to unpack that with you. Thank you so much, of course, for having me. It, it really it means the world. It makes me glow up with a smile to think that I could you know have a conversation with a former professor like this and. 
and it's just so soon after I graduate, you know, it's, it's something that I, I worked for, you know, like you said, with your class, like I always wanted to go above and beyond because I wanted to do um, more than what was asked. And I think that that's, that's another great piece of advice for any students out there. You know, um, that's kind of what made me um, impress upon the people at 6ABC to even think of me for this role that I currently have now is kind of doing more than what I was asked. And so if you love it, that's just going to be natural. Yeah. If you love it, that's just going to be a natural thing uh, to do, to do more than what's asked. So um, thank you so much for having me 